Have you written up a bucket list yet? A bucket list, if you're unaware, is a list of things that you want to do before you kick the bucket, which is another way of saying when you die. The term has become so popular that a, a film was made with that very title, The Bucket List, uh, just over a decade ago, starring Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, no less. And there is a YouTube channel called The Bucket List Family. They have over a million subscribers and they document their journeys and travels all around the world. The idea behind The Bucket List is that Life is too short to waste. It is too short to waste on getting stuck in a job and getting tied down. You need to get out there and live your life and explore the world and create unforgettable memories. Now, whether you agree with that philosophy of life or not, the bucket list is something that makes us think about the whole point of life. And whether you realize it or not, you live your life based on what you think the whole point of life is. And you've arrived at your conclusion of the whole point of life through a certain set of things that you believe to be true. And this morning, Paul draws our attention to one of, if not the most significant thing that we take into consideration when we think about these things. And that is how the story ends. You see, if you believe that your story ends the day that you die and that there's nothing else after that, then of course you're going to live your life accordingly. You'll write up a bucket list, think of all of your dreams and the things that make you happy and all the adventures that you want to have, and you'll just start ticking them off. After all, if you're going to be here, you might as well just do them all. If it all ends at the end, make the most of it. Well, Uncle Paul wants to expand your mind this morning about the whole point of life. And so, as we work through this passage, I want you to ask yourself the question, which you saw on the screen earlier. Do I live in light of the fact that this world is passing away? Do I live in light of the fact that this world is passing away? In this morning's passage, Paul applies this thinking to the specific circumstances of engagement and marriage and singleness as I'm sure it was obvious as we read through it. But in so doing, he also shows us how all of us ought to live in light of eternity. And this is the assumption that lies underneath all of his instructions to all the different groups of people in this passage. And so rather than uh, break this passage up into points like I normally do, I'm simply going to walk through it this morning and hopefully show you that this is what Paul is doing. These are the basic assumptions that he is making as he gives these instructions. So let's have our Bibles open and let's explore this passage together. 
Now, just to uh, orient us this morning, remember last week, Paul gave instructions about circumcision and slavery. He talked about those two specific issues. And for both cases, he kept telling the people, the Corinthians, to remain in the situation that God had called them to. He gave that instruction three times throughout that passage to lead the life that God has given them. And the week before that, uh, Paul basically gave the same kinds of instructions to remain in the situation that they were in. Gave those instructions to those who are unmarried and widowed as well. Well, that same refrain continues here. If you go through chapter 7 and have a look for the word remain, you'll see that come up several times. In verses 26 and verse 40, in our passage this morning, you see Paul give, those instru- give that instruction, remain. And so that same concern, which we've seen in the last couple of passages throughout chapter 7, is right throughout the chapter, and it is here again in this passage. Trust the Lord, Paul says. He is good. He is sovereign. And that is true no matter what kind of life He calls you to. So in our passage this morning, Paul continues to expand on the concern raised in verse 1 of this chapter. As Roger said before, he addresses a different set of people and he continues on this same uh, kind of uh, matter that he is addressing. So let's read verse 25 together. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, betrothal isn't exactly something that our, our culture practices anymore. Not, not here. It is practiced still in plenty of other cultures around the world, but certainly not in Australia or in the West. You don't see it much. Though now that I have my own children, I wonder if we should bring it back. <laughs> uh, but actually what Paul is referring to here is uh, closer to what we would call engagement. So it's not the setting up of, you know, getting your kids to be you know, married to this person in 20 years. It's, it's closer to a, a, a man and a woman committing to one another to get married. Though there is one significant difference in what Paul is talking about compared to how we understand engagement. That is, in Jewish culture, to be engaged to somebody was just as binding as marriage. So if you were engaged, if you were betrothed to somebody, that's why they've used that term, Um, even though the marriage hadn't been consummated yet, your commitment to that person was just as binding as though you were married to them. So we see an example of this with Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You'll notice the words there, Mary and Joseph were betrothed, and yet the word used to describe what he was going to do to break it off was divorce. That gives you an indication of of the way Jews thought about that. And so we'll dive into what Paul has to say to engage people in a moment, but Before we do, it's worth noting what else Paul says in this opening sentence. In a phrase that reminds us of what he said in verses 10 and 12 of this chapter, where Paul says, I, the Lord, not I, or I, not the Lord, Paul indicates once again that he doesn't have any explicit teaching from the Lord, as in nothing that Jesus explicitly himself taught while he was on earth about this particular group of people. But he says he gives his judgment as one who is trustworthy because of the Lord's mercy to him. Paul here is not undermining his own authority as a capital A apostle, 
He's not saying that uh, you know, his words can just be considered as good advice. You know, the same kind of advice you might get from your grandmother or from the internet. No, he's, he still understands his authority to be speaking the words of God. And of course, we've seen examples of that through this book, haven't we? Uh, even in, in last week's passage, he says, this is what I teach to all the churches everywhere. He knows that his words do carry authoritative weight from God. But it is also true that there is a different tone to this passage and also to verses 1 to 16 of chapter 7. Paul presents theologic, theological truth. He does give commands in that, but he also does present some of the things that he says as uh, good counsel to take, depending on the situation that you're in. And so he gives them this counsel and then instructs them to apply it according to their specific circumstance. And so we can do the same. Note that Paul does this as one who has been shown the Lord's mercy. He, he's not saying, hey, I've, I've got the smarts to be able to tell you what to do. I've thought about these things really well. And so, you know, you should listen to what I say. He's not saying because of my great ability or whatever it might be. No, he's saying that God chose him and appointed him to fulfill this task. It was because of his mercy, because of God's mercy that Paul is in this position. If you don't know his story, you can read about it in the book of Acts, particularly chapters 8 and 9. But now here we come to the fun part. What does Paul actually say to this group of engaged people? Let's look at verses 26 to 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry... You have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. In view of the present distress, Paul says. Well, what's the present distress? As Roger mentioned earlier, it's likely that Paul is referring to a rather severe drought that happened around this time. And this would have resulted in all sorts of social upheaval. Uh, not only that, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus records that uh, the famine of AD 51 also coincided with severe earthquakes and floods and widespread panic. And so there was all sorts of stuff happening at this period of time. I mean, it's not hard to imagine, isn't it? If, if in our day we ran out of food um, and earthquakes and stuff like that were happening, you can imagine that society would, uh, would quickly start to go down the toilet. And so imagine even in that period, 2,000 years ago, that happening, the kind of distress that would be going on in the society. And so because of this distress, it seems like those who were betrothed um, could easily have started to second guess whether it was a good idea to get married, to follow through with that engagement. I mean, after all, how do you provide for a wife and maybe even kids if they come along, if there's a famine, if there's not enough food to go around? 
In addition to that, they've also got thinking in their minds this issue that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 about, you know, the kind of sexual relationship married couples should have. And so, you know, if you're in this situation, you're betrothed to somebody, you, you might be thinking, oh, is this really a good idea? Well, Paul, once again, counsels them to remain as they are, if they can. Now, the word wife uh, there in verse 27, in the Greek, is the same word that's used for the word woman. So it's possible that Paul is talking about married couples here, uh, but actually I think he's still talking about the betrothed. The main reasons I think this is because Paul, uh, if Paul was referring to divorce, uh, he could easily have used the word for divorce, which he did earlier in the chapter. So, for example, in verse 12, he talks, uses the term for divorce. And also because Paul has opened this section talking about the betrothed. And so I would read verse 27 as saying, are you bound to a woman? Are you engaged to a woman? Are you betrothed to a woman? But at any rate, given Paul's understanding of betrothal, his counsel would have applied to both whether he's talking directly to somebody who is uh, engaged or married, it, the counsel remains the same. If you're promised to a woman, don't seek to be free because of the present distress, and if you don't have a fiancé, then don't seek to get one. Paul again reiterates what he said to the unmarried and to the widows in verse 8. But this time, he clarifies further that it is not a sin to follow through on the marriage in light of this present distress. It's not a sin. It's okay to do it, he's saying. He's assuring those who are betrothed. However, he says, there are also advantages to not marrying because those who marry will have worldly troubles. All the married people in the house Amen. I mean, anyone who is married immediately knows this is true, right? And even if you aren't married, I'm sure you've picked up from conversations with married folks and from our general culture that this is true. Twice in the last couple of weeks, I've heard blokes say to me or say something close to this. You know what they say? Happy wife, happy life. You know, it's rather self-evident to us that marriage brings with it not only great joys, but also other anxieties. And Paul will return to this very point later on, so I'll save that discussion for then. And then now Paul moves on to show the deeper reason why he gives this counsel. What does verse 29 say? This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And so given the present distress that Paul mentions and the way that some have interpreted it, and by some I mean interpreters today, some of them have understood this to mean that Paul is talking about the fact that Jesus is coming soon. And so they think that Paul believed that Jesus would come in his lifetime, that that was Paul's thinking. This is something that certainly I heard back in the day once or twice when trying to understand this passage. But the fact that Paul's letters, including this one, and even in this very chapter, give instructions that have 
a long-term view in mind, and given the fact that Jesus himself says that no one knows when that last day is except the Father in Mark 13, 32, and in other places, then it's clear that this is not what Paul is referring to. In the light of verse 31, verse 29 cracks open the window to Paul's eschatology. If you haven't heard that word before, it is a theological term meaning the study of the last days or the study of the end times. And so here we see, get a glimpse into Paul's thinking about his understanding of the last days. The long-awaited Messiah, which the Old Testament bore witness to, has now come in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven has now begun with his death, uh, with his life and his death and his resurrection. And we are now in the period of history called the last days. Paul says here, the appointed time has grown very short because we're not waiting for the Messiah to come anymore. We're not waiting to see who it's going to be or what God's going to do or how He's going to do it. We know. Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the Old Testament. He has established a new covenant and has now told us that, we will, that He will return at the appointed time to judge the living and the dead. You know what this means, don't you? It means we now know how the story ends. It means we now know where all of history is headed. It means we now know that what we must do in response. The time is short, not because we know exactly how long this final chapter is going to last, whether it's another 2,000 years, whether it's another 2,000 seconds. None of us know. Only the Father knows. It's not short because we know when it's going to happen. It is short because we know for sure that this is the last chapter. That the end is coming. Compared to the never-ending story, that is short. And this is what anchors Paul's counsel to the betrothed and to everybody else. This present distress reminds them. It has, uh, as Roger mentioned earlier, the, the things that Jesus talked about and we, we read about in Luke, the things that we read about in Joel that are pointing forward to the day, those signs of the end times, this present distress has caused the Corinthians to reflect and think about, well, what, what are the implications of that? in view of the day when Jesus will return. This present distress reminds them that there is a definite end that history is hurtling towards and they ought to live in light of that. Knowing the end of the story fundamentally changes your experience of that story. You know what I'm talking about. Whether it's a, a good book or a good movie, if something has an incredible twist at the end of it, 
It makes you go back and, and read or watch the whole thing again and see the whole thing in, with completely different lenses. You just notice things. Oh, that's what's happening there and that's going, you know. Or in a more disappointing way, if somebody gives away the ending to you of a really good film or book with a really great twist, it's just, it's just not the same. You experience it in like, oh, I really wish I didn't know that. I'm not going to give you any examples because you're going to hate me for ruining it for you. We know how this grand story of human history is going to end. And that should fundamentally, fundamentally change how we live it. And that's exactly where Paul goes to next. Let's read from the second half of verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Well, that sounds a bit contradictory, doesn't it? Didn't Paul just say to those who have wives or fiancés that they should not seek to be free from them? And doesn't living as though you don't have a wife sound like he's saying, well, you should just leave her? In short, if you are reading it literally, yes, that's what it sounds like. So clearly there is something different going on here. And all you have to do in order to understand what Paul is doing is read the last sentence. Well, read the whole thing, but then read particularly the last sentence. Because in this little section, we get a bit of a proverbial, a very wisdom-like saying from Paul. And it's illuminated by that last bit in verse 31. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Do you see what he's saying here? The world is passing away. The time is short. We are in the final chapter and we know how it ends. Jesus is coming back. Sure, you might live 70, 80, 90, 100 plus years. But though that might feel like a long time in our lives, in our earthly understanding of life, it is but a mere breath in the context of God's eternal plans. Your earthly life is a sentence in a book that spans the width of the universe. That ought to humble you. And it ought to change the way you live. No, Paul isn't saying here that if you have a spouse, you should leave them and then go and spend the rest of your life on a mountaintop praying. Nor is he suggesting that you should dull your emotional responses. You know, uh, if you're really sad, just pretend that you're not sad. And if you're really happy about something, then don't, don't get too carried away. No, Paul is not being literal here. Aside from the fact that that's clearly what he's doing, Paul himself often speaks of his own emotions and speaks to the church about them too. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, and Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 are good examples of this. Now, Paul's point in this section is that because the earth is passing away, because God will one day renew it completely, and we will live on, those who have put their faith in Jesus will live on in that new heaven and new earth that Revelation 21 speaks of, then that should make us live accordingly. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in buying and selling in the world, whether it's in living, in settling, in working, in helping others, in experiencing life, whatever it might be, we live knowing the end. The picture of the Christian that Paul paints in this section is of one who hasn't made their home in this world. Let me say that again. The picture of the Christian that Paul paints in this section is of one who hasn't made their home in this world. My parents love to travel. I grew up being fortunate enough and young enough to go along on those trips and not have to pay for them. Some of you know that uh, I lived in Tokyo for 12 months when I was 21. And as you know, Robin and I had the privilege of spending eight months in the US in 2020. And you may also know that Robin and I ended up in Darwin because we spent a few months traveling around Australia. And it always amazes me how when I talk to people about these experiences, especially Christians, they marvel at them as though I've lived an incredibly blessed life because I've gotten to do these great things. And I must admit, for a long time, I felt the same way too. Way back when, uh, there was a part of me that would have felt sorry for people who didn't get to have the same opportunities or, or, or chance to go and travel and see the world and see the great things that this globe has to offer. These days, though, my outlook is completely different. These days, if I had to spend the rest of my life in Darwin or even somewhere harder to live, I mean, like, Darwin's a nice place to live, right? But even if I had to, to, if God called me to live the rest of my life serving Him here for the rest of my days without ever having to travel anywhere else, even though that might be challenging because, you know, of my own sin, because of our culture, because of the expectations that we have of our lives, I would be content knowing that I have the rest of eternity to explore the world. And, you know, even if it turns out that in the new earth we don't get to just spend years frolicking in green hills and diving into waterfalls and <laughs> whatever else on a planet that is untainted by sin. Even if the new heavens and new earth and eternity with God is different to that, even if I don't get to travel in heaven, I can be confident that what I will get to experience in eternity will eclipse anything I could possibly experience 
in this life. Eternity with God will outshine having my breath taken away from standing on the summit of Mount Fuji and watching the sun rise over the clouds. Eternity with God will surpass immersing myself in a foreign culture and establishing lifelong friendships with people on the other side of the world. Eternity with God will will be far greater than being able to, to explore the depths of the ocean and see the wonder of life that God has placed there. I don't need to create unforgettable memories here because a whole eternity of them awaits me. Do you think that way? In our culture, I think travel is a bit of a barometer for our hearts. Because it's so easy for most people in Australia and in developed nations to go, just jump on a plane and go basically anywhere, we can start to think of it as something that is almost a right or something that we deserve. And for many people, it encapsulates that feeling of being free, of living life to the full. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't have some form of travel on their bucket list. Can you relate to that? Is that your definition of really living? Is your life about acquiring these experiences? Well, my friend, if you feel like you will have lived an unfulfilled life if you never get to travel or if you never get to have any of these so-called bucket list experiences, then you are making your home in this world. Is travel inherently evil? Of course not. God has given us his creation to enjoy and he made it good. But where is your heart in your desire to travel? Is it on your bucket list because you're afraid you'll miss out? Have you got travel FOMO? Listen to the words of C.T. Studd, a British man who played cricket for England and then lived his life as a missionary to China, India and Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries. Go and read at least his Wikipedia page. Here are a couple of stanzas from from his well-known poem. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, don't make your home in this world. Live each day knowing that this world is going to pass away. Live each day knowing that if you missed out on the life experiences that Instagram keeps throwing at you, you haven't missed out. What God promises you in eternity with Him is exceedingly better than anything this passing world could offer. And it is exceedingly good. And not only that, Jesus promises life to the full here, here and now in John 10.10. Perhaps you're here this morning and you just don't believe that. Maybe you're here and you would even say that Christianity is true. Perhaps you see what Christianity does to people. And it seems like it's pretty good and that you know, there must be something in it. Maybe you even think that Jesus might have been right about the world. But my friend, when Jesus says he will give you life to the full, that doesn't mean it's going to be cushy and pleasant and that you'll get to do all of these bucket list things. He came into the world to call you to turn away from it. To turn away from your own sin and to believe in Him. To put your whole trust in Him. And to put your life in His hands. If you have not done that, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, regardless of whether you think what Jesus says is right or good, you don't really believe that it's true. Because if you did, you would turn from your sin and trust in Him for salvation. If you really did believe that this earthly life is just a flicker in the full light of eternity, then you would say, just as those who heard Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when they were cut to the heart and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? All of us live according to what we believe is true. Knowing that eternity goes on forever and that you will spend it either receiving God's wrath as a penalty for your sin in hell or receiving God's grace in heaven by repenting of your sin and trusting in Him. Show me how you live and I will show you what you believe about eternity. And so as followers of Christ, we spend ourselves completely for Him. We spend our days, we give up our lives for the cause of Christ and for His kingdom, working to proclaim the gospel, working to see the lost saved, working to see the saved presented as mature on the day Christ returns. To summarize Paul in this section, don't enjoy marriage as though that kind of love is going to last forever. 
Don't mourn over temporal sorrow as though it will last forever. Don't rejoice in temporal joys as though they will last forever. Don't buy things as though earthly treasures will last forever. And don't make your home in this world as though it will last forever. Live in light of eternity. Write your bucket list in light of eternity. Believe me, I get that this is difficult. Eternity, a new heaven, a new earth, Jesus coming back on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Believe me, I, I know it sounds like I'm asking you to treat a dream as more real than our everyday lives. Pastor and author Paul Tripp calls this eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia. We are so prone to forgetting that one day this present world will be the thing that feels like a dream. In the same way that children come in and derail your thought. This present life causes us to forget about what is of most and highest importance. But just as Jesus would tell Thomas after he only believed when he saw Jesus in the flesh in John 20, 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, if this is not the reality that we live in light of, then we might as well just be a support group that likes to speak Christianese every now and again. We must train our hearts and our minds to remember that one day when we kick the bucket, eternity will be the reality of our lives. We must remind ourselves through prayer, through the regular reading of God's Word, and through regularly gathering as His church and encouraging one another as often as we can with biblical truth. Because such work is impossible without God's grace. It is impossible without Him and His Spirit transforming and changing us. And it is through these things that God does that work in our hearts. Well, of course, this perspective has implications for the betrothed, which Paul now elaborates on. Let's read from verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, 
how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. You know, you could read verse 32 immediately after verse 28, and it would flow nicely. But Paul helps flesh out his thinking by putting verses 29 and 31, 29 to 31 in there, that little section. Having now told us to not make our homes in the world, Paul now explains that, of course, a married person is going to have more anxieties in this world. A husband is going to be rightly concerned about pleasing his wife, and a wife is going to be rightly concerned about pleasing her husband. Now, this goes beyond just sexual intimacy, though that is certainly a focus of this chapter. But Paul is making clear that refraining from marriage isn't a morally superior status. Paul is simply stating a fact The single person is able to have undivided attention in serving the Lord. Which is why he said earlier in the chapter that if a person has the gift of celibacy, then great. That person can devote all their time and energy in living for him. In verse 34, we see Paul say that the single woman is anxious about pleasing the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. Now, it'd be interesting. it's interesting, isn't it, to read that because you might see that and think, but shouldn't the married woman be concerned about that too? And come to think of it, shouldn't the men also be concerned about that too? Well, yes. And so Paul's instructions there are ones that can be applied to all of those categories whether single or married. Our concern is to continue to please the Lord and growing in holiness of body and spirit. So this is not to say that that married couples can't be anxious about pleasing the Lord or that they aren't. As a matter of fact, they should be. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Paul and the Bible speak very positively about marriage. That would take a couple of sermons to flesh out, but if you want some references for those who take notes, Mark 2, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Ephesians 5, and Revelation 19 are just a few examples of how God uh, reveals to us that His institution of marriage has been embedded in creation partly to mirror the gospel. So married couples are also concerned about how to be holy in body and spirit. But single people have less worldly distractions as they pursue this. Those who are single don't have the God-given obligations that bind them to the care of their spouse. Now, this might start to sound like Paul is trying to kill the vibe of marriage, right? Trying to stop people from enjoying a good gift that God has given humanity. Well, he actually anticipates that and responds in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, 
but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention, sorry, devotion, wasn't paying attention, to the Lord. Paul says, this isn't a noose that I'm trying to choke you with. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to stop you from get, getting married. I'm simply trying to show for those who might be called to remaining single that it is a good way to live and that it enables you to live for the Lord with undivided attention. And so now Paul proceeds to finish the instruction to the betrothed that he began in verse 25. Let's read together from verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul once again affirms that it is no sin to marry. It is no sin to marry. And he repeats this again after already saying it in verse 28. There's nothing wrong with getting married. Even in the midst of a great famine, even in the midst of this present distress, and that it might make things a lot harder, even though we live as sojourners in the world, as travelers who are just passing through this world, as children of the Most High God who don't make their homes in this world, despite all of that, it is no sin to marry. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be married. There is nothing wrong with seeking to be married. There is nothing wrong with getting married. The one who marries does well, Paul says, even if he who refrains from marriage does better. There are obvious advantages in having undivided devotion to the Lord if you are single, yet you need not feel guilty if you desire to marry. And so Paul here again shows his understanding of how God has wired us. He returns, as he did earlier in the chapter, to the fact that if a man's passions are strong, then he shouldn't wait unnecessarily. Now, this, of course, isn't exclusive to men. But because men took the lead in marriage in that culture, this is, that's likely why Paul is addressing them specifically. And so here, once again, he makes it clear that the only reason an engaged couple should hold off consummating the marriage, you see it there in verse 27. One, if it is firmly established in his heart. Two, if he is under no necessity, meaning he doesn't feel the need to. Three, his desire is under control. And four, he has determined it in his heart. Now, that's a lot of reasons. It's almost like Paul is, he's really trying to make it clear to you. <laughs> no, go ahead with the marriage unless you are really, absolutely, positively sure that you can handle that and it's the right thing to do. Now, because our culture doesn't view engagement the same way, we don't see engagement as binding the same way Jews did, we can't apply this the same way. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's worth mentioning again the way that it applies to singles and to those who are engaged in our culture. 
if you don't burn with passion and you don't desire to get married, then great. You have a full life ahead of you of serving the Lord without the many anxieties that will require your attention if you are married. But if you do desire to be married, then it is not sinful to pursue it. And regardless of which course you pursue, the ultimate aim is the same. Live in light of eternity. Don't elevate and don't disparage singleness or marriage in your own mind. Both are faithful ways of living a life that seeks to please God. Realize that both come with sorrows and joys that you will need to navigate. But both, along with those sorrows and joys, are also temporary. Ultimately, all of us will one day be the bride for one bridegroom. All who have turned from sin and placed their trust in Christ will sit with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul rounds out this passage with one final instruction regarding remarriage for widows. Let's read from verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It's interesting that Paul addresses widows again here in this passage, seeing as he did that earlier in verses 8 and 9. But at the very least, he wants to make clear a couple of points. Firstly, that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And secondly, that she could remarry whomever she wanted, meaning she was able to choose, as long as he is in the Lord. Now, as with the previous set of instructions and recommendations, uh, it goes both ways, for husband and wife. So spouses are bound till death unless they have biblical grounds for divorce, and remarriage is permitted after a spouse's death, provided, of course, that the new spouse is a Christian. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is a key verse in showing that God's design for Christians in marriage is that they are limited to other Christians. Aside from all the practical reasons as to why it's a bad idea for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, and just remember from a couple of weeks ago, we're not talking about somebody who comes to Christ Uh, after they've already been married, we're talking about somebody who is now currently a Christian seeking marriage. Aside from the fact that there are lots of bad practical reasons why you shouldn't do that, well, right here in the pages of Scripture is instruction for the fact that Christians ought to look for another Christian as a spouse. And so if you have further questions about that or if that's something that you're unsure about, then please feel free to come and chat to me or one of our other elders afterwards. 
And so Paul says, it's totally fine to remarry after a spouse dies, but then he also repeats the same thing he said the whole way along. Hey, you know what? Probably better if you just stay single and remain as you are. There's that word again. And then he rounds off this section with perhaps a little sarcastic dig at the Corinthians. You know, those who were trying to say that Paul didn't have the chops to keep up with their spiritual gurus, thinking that he wasn't all that great as an apostle or as a teacher. He says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And with that comment, he closes this section, bringing full circle what he said in verse 25 about his trustworthiness to say these things. And the fact that God, in his mercy, has set aside Paul and filled him with his spirit so that he may speak on God's behalf. And with that comment, we close this section of the letter where Paul deals with multiple scenarios to do with marriage and singleness that he began at the start of chapter 7. I'm sure there's plenty in there for you to be thinking about and considering and applying to various parts of life. But as we've seen, the point of today's passage goes far beyond just marriage and singleness, doesn't it? Because the kind of attitude that a Christian has when they approach marriage and singleness is formed by an understanding of eternity that impacts not only what they think about and do regarding this particular area, but their entire lives. So let me ask again. Do you live in light of the fact that this world is passing away? What's on your bucket list? Whether you've actually written one or not, I have no doubt that somewhere in your mind is a list of things that you would love to do before you die. Now ask yourself the question, are those things on that list there in light of eternity? Or do I ultimately live believing that this life is the only one I'm going to get? And so I need to max out on unforgettable experiences. How you live today will tell you what you believe about eternity. And the question that perhaps governs all of those is, am I devoted to living my life for the Lord, ready to forsake earthly pursuits, ready to forsake earthly treasures, ready to forsake earthly experiences for the sake of God and His gospel? 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, back one, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here is the final verse of C.T. Studd's poem. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess and acknowledge that it is just really hard to live this life knowing that eternity is coming, that the end of this age is drawing to a close and that this world is passing away. Father, so easily we put our trust and our hope and our joy in things that will also pass away. In the human experience, in marriage, in being single, in being free, in good food, in all sorts of things. Father, please continue to remind us that we have only one life, that it will soon be past, and that only what is done for Christ will last. Father, please train our hearts and our minds to live lives by your grace, by your Spirit, that are completely and totally devoted to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.